interested in that uh, topic, please plan to join us. We have two Sundays left in our tried and true series on the book of James. Uh, Today we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, so I would ask that you turn there in your Bible or in your device, James chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Uh, Next Sunday, kids are going to be staying in the whole service again, as we've done on our holiday weekends this summer, and Les Fry is going to be doing our final message. I think he's going to bring a friend along with him. Some of you kids probably know who that will be, Uh, but we look forward to having Les share the final message from the book of James next Sunday. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Before we read... Most of you know that we have renovated an old church in Linwood, and uh, one of the things that we had to do, having done that work, is get a mortgage. And so we had to go to our bank, and the bank sent an appraiser to our home, and we got to find out whether all the work we did and all the money we spent was actually worth anything. We were quite interested to find out what does he appraise our home value at. What I find interesting about that is that all of us are appraisers. I don't know if you knew that, but you are actually, you're an appraiser. And what I mean by that is this, that our lives are a constant appraisal of what we value and what we don't value. Or you could say it this way, our lives are a constant appraisal of what is valuable And what is not valuable? Or you could say it this way. Our use of money reveals who or what we think is truly worthy of our worship. We are all appraisers. We are all worshipers. It's been so helpful for me to recognize the way that the word worship connects with the word worthy. You've heard me say this before, that worship is really about worthship. We are all worshipers, and our lives are constantly demonstrating what we deem to be truly worthy, and the way we live our lives and the way we spend our money is a continual, constant appraisal of what we deem to be truly valuable. With that in mind, I want us to read these verses, James chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. James says, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Oh, what a pleasant Sunday morning message, isn't it? (laughs) This is not the first time that James has addressed the rich in this book that he's written. He mentioned the rich very early in his letter where he says the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. Now, one of the things about studying the Bible is when you find references like this, it gives you really powerful clues as to 
who James was writing to and why. Now, actually, I don't think James was necessarily writing to these rich people that he's condemning in chapter 5, but we can easily deduce that the people, the Christian people that he was writing to, were living in a time where rich people were persecuting them. And so that's why he's referencing them. And then in chapter 2, he actually, he actually rebukes the Christian people and talks to them about how when a rich person comes into their midst, they treat the person with respect and dignity, but if a poor person comes in, they don't treat them with the same respect. And in answering them and rebuking them for this, he says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? We can deduce from this that these Christian people were suffering some forms of persecution, and it might have looked something like this. That if you were a Christian in this culture, in this day, in this region of the world, you were taken advantage of. It was hard for you to find a job. People didn't want to hire you. And if you could find a job, some wealthy landowner says, hey, I actually need some help with, uh, with harvest. Do you want to come and work my field? And the Christian would say, well, yeah, of course. I actually need to make a little money. And they'd go and work for this wealthy landowner. And at the end of the day, the wealthy landowner would say, thanks. Wouldn't pay them. Just exploit them for their hard work. That seems to be what's happening here. So in chapter 5, I don't think James is addressing the Christian people that he's writing to, he's actually providing them encouragement about the fact that these rich people who are mistreating them and perhaps even persecuting them will absolutely face the judgment of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. What would it be like to be a Christian in a place in the world, even, and this is happening today, where you're persecuted for your faith? One of the things that's helpful to know for those people is that God is just, that God is ultimately going to judge injustice and the mistreatment of people who are, are being persecuted simply for their faith in Jesus. That is a word of encouragement. We find that all through the Bible, and that's what these first verses of James chapter 5 are about. This is James' desire to encourage his people who are being persecuted by these rich well, what do we learn about these rich people? Four things. They're hoarding wealth in the last days. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? If it was the last days when James wrote his letter, it's certainly the last days today. And what he's saying is you're hoarding wealth at a time when the world is heading, uh, plummeting towards the return of Christ and the judgment of all things. And here we are living it up as though we're just going to be here forever, and this, this, is, this is what life is all about. And of course, we know from Scripture, it's not what life is all about. We are coming to a day of reckoning when Jesus returns. This is not a good time to hoard wealth in the presence of the God who's soon to return and judge the world. He says, you're living in luxury, in self-indulgence. As I've mentioned, you failed to pay the workers, and in some cases even, you've condemned and murdered the innocent one. I can imagine a Christian person who's faithfully served someone but maybe not been properly paid and, and suddenly it, it comes to the point where this Christian person who's worked hard is owed a large sum of money and instead of paying them what they're owed, they, they hire a hitman and have that person murdered so they don't have to pay them. That's what I envision here in this statement. 
That's the rich person that's being described here in these first verses of James 5. But then we come to this dramatic contrast starting in verse 7, and now he is addressing the believers that he's writing to, and he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So we see the example of the rich man, the description of the rich person, and then we find this contrasting description of the faithful believer. Now, notice here, James is inviting the Christians. Here is how you should live. This is the attitude you should have towards life. And what is it? He said, you should persevere through suffering. He says, you should defer gratification for future redemption. Notice that he's talking about the harvest, right? What does the farmer have to do? He has to defer gratification. He puts a lot of money into the ground, the fertilizer. He works the ground. He plants the, the, the expensive seed, but he has to wait. And if he goes and tries to harvest it too soon he'll get nothing he has to wait and 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 it's a deferred gratification for future harvest for future redemption he says you should live in light of the lord's return he says you should rest in god's goodness did you notice that in verse 11 as he reminds them the lord is full of compassion and mercy I want to do something that I think might be a little bit painful for us this morning. It's convicting for me, and that is I want us to side by side compare these two people. I want us to ask ourselves, which of these descriptions is more like me? All right, so I cheated a little bit. I took the one about not paying the wages and murdering people. I took that off the rich person's side. But I left hoarding wealth in the last days and I left living in luxury and self-indulgence. Which of these two persons describes me? Am I hoarding wealth? Am I living in luxury? Am I self-indulgent? Or is the way that I live and the way that I handle the money and the resources that I have demonstrating a life that's willing to suffer that's willing to defer gratification for the future, that's willing to live in light of the Lord's return, that's willing to rest and be satisfied in the goodness of God. May God help us ask this question honestly. Here's the stats, ladies and gentlemen. In North America, uh, North America makes up less than 5% of the global population. 
But in North America, we have over one-third of the world's wealth. We are less than 5% of the population. We have over one-third of the world's wealth. So let me show you a study of how well we're doing with our money. Only 13% of us give 10% of our income. You say 10%. Well, if you've ever read or studied the Old Testament, you know that was 10%. A tithe, we call it, was kind of the standard giving that God required of his people in the Old Testament. Actually, if you really study it closely, you find that there was more than one tithe. There was actually multiple tithes. So the, the idea of a tithe is actually a misnomer, even though we take that from the Old Testament, they actually were to give more than 10%. Now, one of those tithes was actually a tithe of celebration, where you take 10% of what you get, uh, earned in the whole year, and you go to Jerusalem and you celebrate in the presence of the Lord. That one sounds fun. But there were other tithes where you were expected, commanded to give 10% of your income uh, to uh, the, the work of the tabernacle. They, they were actually required not to harvest the edges of their fields so that those who were living in poverty could go and have something. If you add up all of those things, what you find in the Old Testament, it was actually far more than a tithe. What's interesting is the New Testament never says that we as believers should give a tithe. It doesn't say tithe, it doesn't say less, it doesn't say more. What we do find in the New Testament is Jesus inviting us to follow him and saying, if you want to be my disciple, you have to give up everything you have. He actually said this on one occasion to a rich guy who came along and said, hey, what should I, hey Jesus, what should I do to have eternal life? And in, shocking, in a shocking answer, the Lord's reply to him as a rich man, was sell everything you have. Give it all away to the poor. Come follow me, meaning be my disciple. Come and join me in my ministry, in my mission. And you will have treasure in heaven. I don't believe the Bible commands us to give 10% of our wealth. In fact, Jesus invites us to give all. But as evangelicals, we give, or excuse me, only 13% of us would give even 10%. 19% of us give nothing. Zero. Not to the church, not to missions, not to the poor, nothing. And almost half of evangelicals give less than $500 annually. This is a North American study. This is in stark contrast, as I've already mentioned, to the things that Jesus said. And we say we're followers of Jesus, which means we, we hear what he says and we want to obey what he says and we want to live the way he lived. And he said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He said, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. I've heard some people try to explain this little imagery away. What did Jesus mean by that? He meant squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. That's what he meant. 
He's saying it is impossible for a person who's wealthy and in our sin nature uh, to so naturally not only trust in our wealth for our security, but love our wealth as our worship. The only way for a person like that to become a genuine believer in Christ is for God to do a miracle in their heart. Has God done that miracle in your heart? Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower, known to so many of us. And he describes the seed that fell among thorns like this. It stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. That means I can be a Christian, but if I'm actually consumed by living for worldly wealth and pleasure and having more and bigger... I'm actually showing myself to be an immature follower of Christ. And then this one. In a parable about stewardship, he says this. If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? You know what he's saying. The way that we live now and the way that we manage our worldly wealth now will... Uh, will, will dictate the kind of reward that we might receive in eternity. Notice what he says next. If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Do you know what that means? He's reminding us that what, I, what, what you have in your wallet right now, your vehicle that's out in the parking lot right now, the home that you're going home to right now, it's not actually yours. It's not yours. We know this from the Bible. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Yeah, that's you, that's me, and that's all our stuff. All our money. This life is a stewardship whereby God has granted us, and we here, us in North America, He has granted us much you know what that is? That's an opportunity for us to steward the wealth he's given us in such a way that we can have even greater treasure in heaven. And yet, for many of us, we've taken the opportunity to take it as our own, to assume that this is mine, I've earned it, I did the education, I did the schooling, I've worked hard all my life, this is mine. And consequently, we may find one day that we've not been trustworthy with someone else's property and we will not receive eternal property that could have been ours forever. This calls for us, it calls for me, to make war on materialism. When I say materialism, I mean simply that attitude of life whereby we long for, look for, trust in, value the goods and the stuff and the money of this world. We need to, as followers of Jesus, make war on this. Do you agree? We have to make war on this in the culture that we live in with all the wealth that we have. It is so easy for us to fall into the expectations even of even of our church family and the believers around us, that this is normal, it's normal for us to have this. We have to fight against this expectation. James 
actually helps us to know how to do this. In those first six verses, he's pronouncing judgment on the rich who are persecuting and taking advantage of the believers. But in verses 7 to 11, he's actually going to show us how we can make war on materialism. So let's have a look at that once again. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't you find it interesting the way, the, the way that James encourages them? He doesn't encourage them in the way that we encourage one another in North American Christianity where we say this too shall pass. Better days ahead. And what we, we don't mean that Jesus is coming and someday we're going to spend eternity with him. We mean that some, somewhere, somehow, this life is going to get better. And James is not doing that. What he's saying is things will get better, not next week, not when, not, not when you get paid, not when you get a better job, not when you get a bigger house. Things will get better when Jesus comes. He's meaning this to be genuinely encouraging to these people. Something great is coming, better days are coming. When Jesus comes, you mean, you mean as long as I'm in this world, in this life, in this situation, I just have to wait? And that better thing that's coming is... When this life is over, when Jesus comes back and judges the world, that's... And see, folks, that is exactly our problem. Because that's not good enough for many of us. Because what we really want is for things to be better in this life. What I really want is to have more in this life, to have more security, to have more things, to have more... Uh, to have more blessings, physical blessings. That's what I really want. And to make war on materialism, we have to completely change our mindset about this life. So what is James saying? What he's saying is the harvest that's coming, the blessing that's coming, the payday that's coming, comes when Jesus comes. What if we took that on as our attitude of life? that we weren't looking for payday here. We were looking for payday there, in that next life, in that next kingdom. Do you realize what a revolution that would create in our own hearts and in our lives? Think of the difference that that makes when we make decisions about whether we're gonna give to the Lord's work or give to missions or give to the poor. When, when the back drop of that decision is, number one, I'm living for myself for now, I want more now, versus the true payday, the true blessing, the real party comes when Jesus returns. And so for now, I can give sacrificially. I can give till it hurts because this isn't, this isn't payday. This isn't the main event. In fact, this stuff that I have isn't even mine. But the true payday that's coming, the true harvest comes when Jesus comes. You see what that means? It means that we abandon our expectation of wealth 
and comfort and ease in this life now, in this world now. Does that sound radical? That's what Jesus taught. What he taught is that now in this life we expect hardship and we stand firm. That's what James is saying here in verse 8. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. We do not expect hardship. Now, nobody likes it. We can actually thank God if we've been able to escape hardship like persecution. We can actually thank God for that. But, but we must not allow ourselves to be settled and, and deceived into a mindset that says, well, what else would I expect? You know, that there's many Christians, Christians in North America who believe in what we might call the prosperity gospel. The idea that if you're faithful to God, if you trust in God, and if you give to your rich pastor, you will be blessed with material things. And in fact, that's what God wants for you now. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be healthy and wealthy and wise. And folks, that is a false gospel. That's not true. That's not what Jesus taught. I think most of us in this room would agree with what I just said. We'd say, yeah, that's not, the, that's not true. And yet we live with the expectation that we will be healthy and wealthy and wise now. Even though we don't believe that's the true gospel, we still end up with this idea, this expectation that that's, that's what I want. I do want that now. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And if we lived with the expectation of hardship, our grip on material things is loosened. And our ability to share and to give is exponentially assisted because we expect hardship and we stand firm. Listen to what Peter said writing to believers in a similar situation, believers who are suffering persecution. He says this, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Do you hear what he's saying? If we approach the Christian life with the expectation that this is not going to be easy, I am going to have to suffer, my ability to actually follow Christ and live as he lived is, super, is incredibly enhanced. Expect suffering and your grip on the things, the material things of this world is loosened and you're able to be generous. Make war on materialism. Expect hardship and stand firm. James goes on to say, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets. Oh, great. James is trying to encourage us by pointing us to the Old Testament prophets. Remember those guys? If you remember the prophets and how the prophets were treated and guys like Jeremiah who were put in, thrown in cisterns and put in the stocks, let me encourage you, believers. Think of the prophets. Doesn't sound very encouraging. But then he mentions another character. We count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and 
have seen what the Lord finally brought about, now using Job as a picture of someone who lost everything and then gained everything, remembering, though, he's not, he's not suggesting to us gaining everything comes in this life as it, it did for Job. For us, it comes when Jesus comes. But there's a second thing we can do to make war on materialism, and it comes in verse 11. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. We can make war on materialism by anticipating Jesus and persevering. Two ways that we see this. One is from verse 11. Anticipating meaning enjoying, valuing, appreciating who Jesus is and what he's done. Who he is and what he's done. He's full of compassion and mercy. The second thing we anticipate, of course, we've seen already, is his coming. The Bible says there's actually a, a reward, a, a crown... 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, the crown of life is going to be given to those who long for the coming of Jesus. But why, why would the Lord set that reward out in front of us? Because it's the secret to a healthy, vibrant Christian life. Look forward to the return of Jesus. Let this be your one thing. Let this be your big thing. This is what you pursue. This is what you pray for. This is what you long for. I just want to see Jesus. I just want to be with Jesus. If we can get into that kind of mindset, our grip on material things is loosened. Our fingers are pried off of money and stuff. And we're able to be generous because... The one thing that really matters to us, the one thing that we really value is Jesus. Now let me say this, if you're anything like me, you hear a message like this and maybe you feel the weight of it and you feel like, wow, I'm so far from this ideal, and I say, yeah, join the club. And we have to ask ourselves, so what is What's the solution to this? As so many of us sit in this room and feel the weight and the conviction, I, I assume, of this passage, I do. And what's the answer? How do, we, how do we overcome our natural, sinful, human selfishness and greed? And the answer is in verse 11. It is the compassion and mercy of Jesus. You see, the gospel has come to rescue people like us who are selfish and greedy, who hoard wealth in the last days. The gospel has come for people like us. And it's not just about God forgiving us for being so greedy and selfish. It is a gospel that transforms our hearts and makes us more like Jesus. That's what I need. Maybe that's what you need this morning. It is the compassion and mercy of Jesus that we must hope in I would say that many of us need to begin to pray to this end. We pray to this compassionate God and we say, Jesus, would you change my heart? I find myself so tied to, so, so set on worldly wealth. I want to enjoy the things of the world now. I have wrongly assumed that what I have is mine. I have not been <clears throat> generous. And we begin to plead with this God of compassion, this Savior Jesus, and we ask him, Lord, would you change our heart? Do you think God would answer a prayer like that? 
I've seen God answer all kinds of prayers, but whenever I have sincerely prayed that he would change me from what I was into what he wants me to be, I always find that he delights to answer the prayer because it completely aligns my heart with what he already said he wants to do. So we plead with this Savior to change our heart. The second thing we do is we look, and we've done this this morning in communion, the more time we spend gazing at the generosity of Jesus, who, by the way, the scripture says, though he was rich, he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, who is the prince of heaven, the king of kings and lord of lords, set aside his royal robes, stepped down off a throne, came to the earth, and lived as a pauper, wading out into the filth and the poverty of our world to rescue people like us. The more we look at that and marvel at that and celebrate that and praise him for that, the more we will be transformed into his likeness. So we need to pray. We need to ask God. We need to make war on materialism. There's another way we can do that, and that is simply by the practice of generosity. Glenn prayed for Raul and Jesenia, some of our missionaries that we support financially. Jesenia grew up here in this church. And they serve God down in Ecuador in a suburb of Guayaquil called Bastogne. They work at a Christian school where children who live in poverty are able to come, not only be educated, but also hear about Jesus and, as well, receive some physical material things like food, that are helpful to them. Raul and Jesenia um, and their ministry has created this really cool, simple way that we can support these children. There's a sponsorship. I think, I think it's around 50 bucks a month. I don't know exactly. Where we can, we can sponsor a child. Uh, Diana and I got to hang out with Raul and Jesenia about a month ago before they went back. I was just asking a little bit about this and so so like, do you actually, you don't have children that still need to be sponsored. Actually, yeah, we do. We have a lot that still need a sponsor. Brothers and sisters, it would be so easy. I know it would be for this church this morning to fill every last need of every child that still needs to be sponsored at that school as a way of supporting our own missionaries and their work, but far more as a way of demonstrating that what we really value is not my bank account and my possessions. What I really value is Jesus. I want to go his way. I want to support his work. I want to feed people the way he fed people. I want people to know about Jesus, and I'll put my money to that. I would love if by next weekend we could say all the children at the Hope of Bastion School have been sponsored to the glory of God. We're going to sing, Christ is enough. And that's really the question as we close this morning that we have to wrestle with. If everything in my life was taken away except Jesus, what would I choose? Would I choose my money and my stuff or would I choose Christ? May we choose well.